we will go into Jonah chapter 3. We've titled the sermon, The Eagle Has Landed, because it has been a great time that we've been waiting. As we've been going through the book of Jonah, we've been waiting for him to actually arrive at Nineveh as the first couple of verses of the book started out. It said right from the the very beginning in verse 2, God called him to go to Nineveh. He refused. He lived in sin. He ran away from God. He went and uh, ran off to the ocean. God basically drowned him and then swallowed him up in a whale and put him into uh, back on his track. And so it's been two long chapters, but finally we're in chapter 3 when Jonah lands in Nineveh. And it is a glorious chapter. We sort of covered last week how if we get to chapter 3, and we see Jonah walk into a, a, a massive pagan town, and he preaches this short sermon, and revival breaks out, and it does. Jesus affirms that this generation of Ninevites truly repent. They truly turn from their sin, trust Yahweh, they are saved. They'll meet us in heaven. When that happens, and we're surprised, it's because we're not looking at the world and Scripture and history and the future and your current state in this world, we're not looking through covenantal, gospel, biblical worldview lenses. If we were, it would make perfect sense that God would save a pagan nation because that's what he promised from the very beginning that he would be doing. That was the purpose of Israel, to be the, the door that would swing open to the nations the blessings of God. We saw that how that worked out. We went all, all the way through 1 to verse 5 last week, but I'm going to read again. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 10, the the remaining uh, verses in chapter 3, and then we are going to walk through it. It's quite quite an interesting chapter. So here we are, Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, meaning you could walk from one end to the other, or maybe it means around its circumference, we don't know, but it would take you a three days' journey, probably walking on foot for 12 hours a day. That's an enormous city. Jonah began to go into the city, going at about a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast Herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. May God bless the reading of his inerrant and precious word among us today. When you read that, and we, we said last week, I've just recapped before, this is true history. It actually happened just like we read it. 
He goes in and, and either the, the one part that might be symbolic and metaphorical is not the whale, is not the revival. The one part that might be more than what it seems is his sermon. In the Hebrew, it's five words. Now, it's, it's, it's unlikely that he goes in and preaches five words and sees revival, but no more unlikely that he would preach for five hours and then see revival, because revival is the regenerating work of God. It's a miracle. So he could utter one word and there'd be revival if God is behind it. So, so we don't know. But, but he probably, this is, a, this is a, a, a recap of his sermon, and maybe there was more. We, we're not entirely sure. But we know he doesn't stay long because Jonah chapter 4 tells us he gets angry at the revival and skids off to a mountain to watch the place hopefully burn, but we'll, we'll cover that next week. So here's us. We're reading this, and it all seems very fanciful and magical, and, and uh, you know, it's too good of a story. But we need to ask, why did this happen? How could this have happened? What, how can we make reason of this? And I don't want to get us into any kind of habit, like we, when we looked at the, the whale, we never want to get into a habit of reading something in the Word of God and then questioning it. Well, how can we reason and, and make this logical to our modern minds? We don't want to do that. But what we do when we walk into Scripture is we don't want it to just sort of float six feet off the ground and be this, this mythological-style um, uh, 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 anti-reason, illogical, makes-no-sense-to-us kind of story. We want to engage in it with it in a way that makes sense to how we understand Scripture and the world. So I want to go through a few very, very interesting historical reasons why this sort of thing could happen in the world of Assyria. 120,000 people repented and saved, and there's a few historical reasons that I think tell us why. So, so if you go back to the Assyrian history, I know you've all just finished reading your, your, uh, your Assyrian history books. And in that, you read that the main God's name was, oh, we've got at least a couple of Bible study, Bible seminary students here this evening who should know that, right? Asher, right? They were, the, the main God was Asher. That's why the city became known as Asheria or Assyria. And so uh, the main God was Assyria, but involved in ancient Babylon from 800 or more years beforehand, um, and so they were also involved in the beginnings of Assyria was this ancient god Dagon. You'll remember Dagon from the Philistines, from the Babylonians and others. Who Dagon was, does anyone know the, the animal that represented Dagon? A fish. I don't know if I heard anyone say that. I'm going to pretend I did. A fish, a giant man fish. Now what's very, very interesting <laughs> is that when we go back to 290 BC. We, we read this historian from Greece, but he was sort of a, a Babylonian uh, uh, Eastern writer, and, and, but he spoke Koine Greek, and he would write about the history of his people, the Babylonians and the Assyrians. At that point, the Assyrians were all dead. Babylon was uh, you know, uh, uh, not a superpower like it was in its glory days, but he was writing about the history, and, and he would speak of this myth that the Assyrians believed about the divine visitation, Barossus was this historian, he spoke about the divine visitation of Dagon to the people of ancient Babylon and Assyria. What they believed was that this half-man, half-fish came up out of the ocean. He walked, uh, he had legs, he had a tail, he had uh, a human head, but then a fish head that extended over. He was, he was a giant man and he walked on the earth as an incarnation of the god Dagon. And he came to the Assyrians and the ancient Babylonians, and he taught them how to cultivate the land. 
He taught them war tactics. He taught them uh, linguistics and mathematics. Like he taught them to be civilized, orderly, and prosperous. And then he jumped back into the ocean, came back the next day, taught them more. He did that for a while, and then he swam home to the godland. But what they believed is, and what the, the history books told them, uh, as we go back to these, these myths of the Assyrians, is that every now and then, when the Assyrians and the Babylonians, when they were veering from the right way, that God would send a messenger, each with different names each time, but some kind of incarnated messenger to go to their people and speak to them, who would rise up out of the ocean, come to the city, speak to them a word of repentance or instruction or law, and then go back to the ocean. <clears throat> We read, as we read uh, Barossus, we go back into the Assyrian inscriptions on that ancient Ninevite city. What they find is an, an inscription of one of these incarnations, one of these men who came up out of a fish onto the beach and walked into Nineveh and preached, and his name was Yonah. Does that sound at all familiar? And as he came in and he, he told them to repent and, told, and taught them a better way and they, they changed and there was some sort of historical writings about that. This man, this, this God-man, Yonah, which had become so mythologized, is obviously, or, or at least as we looked at, we can reason that this would be Jonah. And even if it's not, like, you know, there's some, there's some linguistic uh, 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 differences between the names that, that leave room for speculation. But, but there's enough evidence here to at least say, even if, even if that, that exact man wasn't Jonah, it would make a lot of sense then, wouldn't it, that this random miracle of fish-eating and vomiting man up onto the beach, it would put it into a great deal of context, wouldn't it? That the people God is sending Jonah to are people who believe when someone is spat up by a fish onto a beach, they're to be listened to. Puts it into a lot of historical context, I think. And here it is, up out of the, the belly of a fish, the eagle lands. And, and I, I think this has reason. What we're not told is that, uh, is that Jonah is vomited up where he got on the boat. He got on the boat over near Jerusalem. And, and Nineveh is a huge hike, three-month hike up into the northeast. Now, we're not told where he was vomited up. My guess would be my speculation, if you let me make one, is that he was carried by that fish over to the Phoenician shoreline near the Ninevites and Babylonians and spat up there with witnesses who then watched him and followed him into the city. That, that's, that's my theory. I don't think you'll find a better one. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. But I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. Let me, let me go into this a bit, because you might hear that and go, oh, well, they've mythologized, they've paganized this great story of Jonah. Obviously, it wasn't a true repentance, but that's not true. We can still take it as a true repentance of, of this prophet of Yahweh. They turned and, uh, from their sin. But what happened is, as, as the next generation turned from God, as the next generation went back to their evil, demonic, pagan ways, so the, the story of the true prophet and his true preaching got twisted and polluted. So that by the time Barossus wrote in 290 AD, uh, sorry, 290 BC, this whole story had been changed and sort of mixed in with the, the Assyrian uh, uh, myths. But there's even more. We, 
when we look into the Assyrian history, there's, there's this really uh, high and mighty king named Tilgath-Pileser III, and he's kind of the guy that comes in and destroys much of uh, Israel. He's a, a, a high-handed, authoritarian, battle-ready, army-wielding king. He brings Assyria back to its glory. But before him, there was a whole bunch of political upset. In fact, they, the historians say that um, Assyria, especially the city Nineveh, almost fell into non-existence in the generations just before tilgath pileser That would make a, a perfect little time that, as, Jonah, as God said to Jonah back in chapter 1, he says that the trouble of Nineveh has come up before me. Go and call out to them. So it would make a lot of sense that in those, those generations, uh, two or three generations of kings that were, uh, there was political ups, um, unrest, there was, um, there was disease breakout among the city of, of Nineveh, there was a great famine that broke out, and there was political riots going on in the city. There was an enemy attack, the Babylonians and some of the other smaller enemies of Assyria were starting to push into Nineveh and the Assyrian strongholds and bring them down. There was also an earthquake dated to that generation. And the greatest, now, now to us, we're all going, yeah, that happens, so what? It's the earth's tectonic plates and whatever. We're, we're scientists, I know. But for the Assyrians, for the Babylonian uh, people back then, the, the Assyrians and the Ninevites, they are omens. They are signs of divine activity. When the earth shakes and you don't know that it's made up of tectonic plates rubbing against each other and causing vibrations coming to the surface, right? You don't know all that science. You're just living and this city literally grumbles and shakes. That's a divine sign to you. These, these men are so superstitious. The, the ultimate sign of God's judgment on an ancient people like that was a solar eclipse. When the sun, which is so often worshipped, so often the, uh, 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 held up as the sign of the ultimate God, which gives life, it controls the day, it's everything. When that gets blotted out in darkness, the ancient people would become very much afraid. And in the year 763 BC, astronomists, uh, uh, astrologists, astronomists, what, the one that doesn't read like your birth sign, the other one, <clears throat> They look back and they confirm, 763, there was a great solar eclipse that cast darkness in the midday all over the Ninevite city. That happened in the years of Asher Dayan III, or the second. Let me get that right. Asher Dayan III. That was a, a Ninevite king or an Assyrian king who had moved the capital to Nineveh. And so it, it, it has, it makes, I'm not talking to you, Siri. I apologize for that. Woman, stay in your place. <clears throat> so, this may all refer, right? This all makes a lot of sense. We're looking at this time of great political upheaval and unrest. When kings are sure from all that is going on, they know that the gods are judging them. And then all of a sudden, a man is spat up out of a fish onto their prophetic beach and walk into the city proclaiming a word from the Lord. That makes a lot of sense that all of this upheaval would lead to a people being ready to receive the word of God. I hope that puts Jonah out of the, the realm of myth for you and sort of puts it on the ground and goes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense for how this can be happening. This, is, this really questions how we view, how we view a world going through 
birth pains. It is going through shaking, either politically, racially, uh, natural disasters, diseases. Do, do we, like Jonah, do we look at great trouble and turmoil and say, good, the Lord is finally killing everybody else so that we, the elect, can remain happy and survive and live in some paradise? Good, God is finally going to kill all of my pagan neighbors and unrighteous co-workers. Good, God's going to crumble the West and take down America and destroy England. And the church will, you know, go off into our bunkers. Do we take that Jonah mindset that he had, wanting the destruction of God's enemies? Or do we, with the eyes of faith, look at destruction, look at turmoil, look at trials, look at political upheaval and say, with the eye of faith and the promises of God, God is preparing the people of the world to hear the gospel. That if we would just be bold enough to go, if we would be bold enough to speak out in our workplace, our families, wherever we are, we could expect that people are ready to hear. That the fields are white for harvest. Their hearts, their hopes, their securities have all been crumbled, have all been shaken. They have nothing else to trust. And we come in with the gospel of Jesus Christ and declare to them a peace, security, a gospel of eternal truth that holds them fast, that has power. Let us not waste the turmoil of our world. But you might ask, is this really something God would do? And I want you to think about this because this, this will affect a lot of the ways you view uh, missionary stories and, and how you might engage if you ever go to the mission field to unreached people groups. Would God, being the holy God that he is, who hates demon worship, which other religions call worship to their gods and idol worship and all of that, God hates those things. Would he stoop so low as to use those pagan myths and idol worship and prophecies for his own purposes? <clears throat> Would we, you know, do you just hear what I said about Jonah sort of fulfilling the ancient prophecies of Assyria and say, that's false, that can't be true, God doesn't work that way. Well, what I want you to do is, is go to Acts chapter 10. I'm going to give a couple of examples where we find that, in fact, the Lord delights in using the foolish thoughts and the foolish wisdom of the world to achieve his own kingdom-demolishing, Jesus Christ kingdom-establishing power. So in Acts chapter 10, we sort of looked at this a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about the city of Joppa. This happens in Joppa where Simon Peter, the Apostle Peter, he has this, this vision of, of uh, I won't go through all of it, but basically God is telling him, I'm going to pour the Holy Spirit out on Gentiles. And the symbol that he was giving him of that is, you can eat unclean food, it's clean now. There's no border separating you between foods uh, that are clean or unclean. Everything's clean for us in Christ now. And what that was symbolizing was that Gentiles are, are, are unclean. And God was saying, Christ was saying through this vision, the gospel, the Holy Spirit can go and indwell Gentiles. Hold nothing back from your bold preaching to them. And all of this happens at Joppa. And so what happens, though, is that Cornelius was this, he was an unsaved man. He was not saved, but he had respect for and fear for God. Now, that wasn't salvation. And the reason we know that is because God gives this vision to Peter. 
And he says, there are men, uh, uh, sorry, that's in verse 20. So there are men looking for you, Peter. Go up and accompany them without hesitation. I have sent them. And then also, they say to, to Peter, these men who have come to find him after this vision, they said, Cornelius, a centurion, uh, an upright and God-fearing man, though a Gentile, an upright and God-fearing man, though unsaved, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, but unsaved, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. And then they went from Joppa and accompanied him to, uh, sorry, they accompanied him to Joppa. So they went to uh, uh, Cornelius. And when Cornelius came, verse 25, chapter 10, Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Pretty good sign. Cornelius does not have saving theology. He starts worshipping Peter. Peter says, obviously, verse 26, get up. I too am just a man. But he talked with him and he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. That is Gentiles. He was breaking Jewish customs right now. <clears throat> But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for you, I came without objection, and I asked then why you sent me. And so they, they ask uh, that he would preach to them. And so he preaches long. He prays long. And he says in verse 31, he said to them, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your arms have been remembered before God. That's his sacrifices to the poor. Have been remembered before God. Now, now. Do you have the categories in your theology to say people's prayers can be heard, their sacrifices can be received, their, their religiosity in some way can be remembered by God, but they're still not saved? Because Peter has that room in his theology. He says that. He says, you have been heard, you have been remembered, your work has been known. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon. This is what the angel spoke to Cornelius who is called Peter, he's lodging there, go and get him. So I brought you, so I sent to have you brought here, Peter, he says. Then verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, this is what underlies what happens in Jonah. Peter says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, at the baptism of John that he proclaimed. And then he goes on to preach to him the gospel. Now, so what we're seeing here is God is meeting a man in the midst of his unsaving, untrue, still blasphemous religion. But God is hearing him, and when Peter then says... Everybody in all nations who call out to God are heard by the Lord. God shows no partiality. He's not saying anybody who's really earnest in their religion, whatever religion they're in, God will hear them and save them. He's not saying that. He's saying those who seek the Lord are doing so because they were chosen by the Lord before time. Because God is working in their hearts to call to him. So what does God do to Cornelius? He doesn't tell him by an angel, you're saved. He tells him, send to somebody who can preach to you the gospel. So he comes. 
And then Cornelius hears, him and his household, they believe, they are saved, they get baptized. Go back to Jonah. This is what is happening in the book of Jonah. These people, crying out to whatever God they don't know about, have been heard by the Lord and not forgiven or saved just because they tried hard in their Assyrian religion. But he sent a messenger to them. Another a version of that, which is only hinted at, but is definitely true, is, is the men of the East, which would be Assyrian Babylonian men at the time of Jesus Christ's birth. You know, the three magi, the three wise men at Christmas? They were, they were astrologists. Did I say it right this time? They were super, there we go, thumbs up, which isn't scientists in the, in the truest sense. They were studying the stars to get some kind of divine meaning. That's why they followed the star that led them to Jesus. They weren't godly. They were pagans. But God brought them to the king. And somehow, some way, we might hold on to hope that they were saved. We are not entirely sure. But what we know is that God is, is happy to use whatever foolish pagan ideologies people have in order to enter into that, smash down the old views of God, and establish the kingdom of Christ on the rubble of the old pagan kingdom. <clears throat> I have another story. This one comes from the 1820s. The 1820s. There is a, there is a people group, quite an ancient people group. The, the, the name is Karen, spelt the same as Karen. Karen. There are people who lived uh, uh, originally, they, they were the first settlers of Myanmar that we now, it was then called Burma, now called Myanmar. They were one of the first settlers people there coming through Thailand. So they lived on the mountains of the border of Thailand and Myanmar. They were eventually pushed through. They were sort of overcome by the Burmese people who then established themselves in that nation. They became a persecuted group and they lived much in the uh, mountains away from their original homeland. But these people had this ancient mythology. Their ancient mythology sort of went like this. They, they had a, a view of a one God creator and then in the perfect world, a man and a woman were tricked by a devil and fell into sin. And that evil spread throughout the world. And then God spoke to three brothers. There was one brother who was black-skinned, one brother who was white-skinned, and one brother who was Karen. Everyone else is just in broad categories. They get their own people group, apparently. Okay, so Karen brother, black brother, and the youngest brother was a white man. And to those brothers, God gave a golden book. That golden book was to be the truth from heaven, given to them by angels that they should live by and prosper. And their old mythology says that, that the, white, the white brother sort of took that book and was prosperous and did much with it, but left it somewhere in a garden. It got buried, and the black brother and the Karen brother never got to get to that lost, golden, glistening, shining book. And so the white man prospered, and they had this prophecy that was worked up for hundreds and thousands of years among the Karen people, that one day the younger brother, the white man, would come by the boat and bring to them the lost golden book, and by that they would come to know the truth of Yahweh, the God. The, the God up there in the sky, Yahweh, would send to us a white man on a boat, the younger brother with the glistening golden book. Fast forward to 1820s. Adoniram Judson has gone from America as a Congregationalist missionary 
to India, but gets diverted. We, we told the story back in chapter one and went instead to Myanmar. And there, another uh, missionary couple came and joined him, George and Sarah Boardman. Now, now, now George and Sarah, they, they, they decided they wanted to go into the mountains to reach this, this tribe of Karen people. Who were, There was thousands of them up there, but no one could reach them. They didn't have a written language. They were these poor, marginalized people. But, but Adoniram Judson, back in Yangon, he, 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 he converted this Burmese man. And this Burmese man, uh, now a Christian, had a slave. And so as Judson spoke to this man, he was able to get the Christian to free his slave. And that, that slave, he realized, had become a slave because he was a murderer of over 30 people and a thief. But he too gets converted, praise the Lord. This man was a Korean. He was one of the only, in fact, as far as we know, he was the only Karen man in Yangon. He'd been shunned for his murder. <clears throat> he gets converted, and then he, with Mr. Boardman and his wife, go off into the mountains to go and witness to the Karen tribes. Before he left, Adoniram Johnson gave him a new name, this slave murderous man, gave him a new name as a Christian. Let me read it so I don't get it wrong. I'm sure I'll pronounce it terribly. But his name was then Kotabu, which means younger brother, because he was Judson's younger spiritual brother. Off went Kotabu with the white man, Boardman, and they preached and they went through the rivers and they, they went on their boat to town to town trying to find the Karen villages. And when they did, they found a people repentant at their very first sermon. Off the boat stood young brother and the white man holding in their hands a glistening, shining, golden Bible. As they preached, these people believed. Kochabu became a, 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 a viral evangelist. He won, in the first few years of his labors, over 1,270 Karen souls to Jesus Christ. It was the first breakout of revival among the Burmese people after Judson had arrived, and from then, so the gospel spread. Karen tribes are now no longer animists who worship animals and demons in trees and rocks and animals, but are now Christian widespread. The younger brother came, the white man on the boat, and brought that lost golden book. God was pleased to use this, this twisted story. Obviously, the, 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 the Karens were descendants of Noah. They, they knew the stories of Genesis. They had a story of the great flood, but by the time they'd arrived, they were pagans. They were creation worshippers. God was pleased to use their own myths and prophecies to bring the kingdom of Christ there. I love that story. I, I could tell you a few more, but time will get away from us far too quickly. <clears throat> let, me, let me tell you what is absolutely required. When we read this report in Nineveh, we read this report in the Karen tribe, what you need to realize is there are certain things absolutely necessary for there to be revival. And that is, number one, the electing work of God. If God does not have elect people in a city, no one from that city will be saved. You can't choose God unless God has first chosen you. 
You can't come to God unless God by his spirit first comes to you and makes you to call out to Jesus Christ for salvation. We know that. We're reformed. We know that. But, but I want you to feel the reality of that. Never, never try and witness to people unless you believe that there is a chance that God has elected them. So do you walk around life just assuming probably, probably everybody's non-elect, the ones who are saved, we're a pretty good number, we're a pretty good crew, I don't want to handle any more, that's about it. Or do you have the assurance or at least the, the possibility in your mind that everywhere we go, there will be elect people? We'll get there in, an, in the next section. <clears throat> but for now, let us say number two, what is needed is the preached word, the explicit preached word gospel of Jesus Christ for there to be any such revival or, or, or salvation. You can go with me to Acts chapter 4. This again is the, 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 the words of the apostles in the first generation of Christianity. In Acts chapter 4, as they've boldly been, been opposed by the uh, religious authorities of the day, before the council, Peter speaks very, very boldly. He's speaking of Jesus Christ, and he says in verse 11, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now you can read some fanciful, uh, very try-hard but failing exegetes who want to say, that the way of salvation is exclusive, but it's also open. In other words, no one's saved except through Jesus Christ. But you can be a Muslim saved by Jesus Christ and not know it. You can be a Buddhist and be saved by Jesus Christ through your Buddhism, though you've never known the name of Jesus Christ. So they'll say, Jesus, if anyone goes to heaven, it's through Jesus, but you don't need to know Jesus. God just needs to know you and accept your Cornelius version religiosity. The problem is that in this very verse, Peter links these two things together. There's only salvation in Jesus because there's only one name given from heaven among men who can save. The name is important. The gospel behind the name needs to be preached. Let me read it again. There is salvation in no one else because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. By which we're saved by the knowledge of the name, by the knowledge of the person, by the knowledge of the work of Jesus Christ. Romans 10, you can swing me, swing uh, over there. Romans chapter 10. And we can go to <clears throat> verse 12. Again, this, this global, open gospel. Verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all. There's no distinction between Ninevite and Israelite. The same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, the naming of Jesus Christ the calling on him in faith is necessary. Then he says, but how, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? 
how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to heal without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Yes, God is merciful to all people, every nation, anybody. But that mercy is extended only through Jesus Christ, and therefore the gospel is not good news until it reaches them. Don't leave any room in your mind that there's some mercy of God savingly for people without the gospel of Jesus. That will cut off your zeal for missionary proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. Hold before your eyes the reality. Anybody who does not call on the name of Jesus explicitly because they heard the gospel preached by a preacher who was sent to them, nobody will be saved from their sin. Stay convinced of that, and you will do the work of the evangelist. You will do the work of the missionary. If you let any wiggle room go there, you will lessen your conviction and fail those who need you most. But let us speak of the expectation. As we are back in Jonah 3, and we read this, what has happened in Nineveh, you, you want to wonder how this can happen. A short five-word sermon, maybe, maybe slightly more, but not a whole lot more. And here they are, Repenting, And I want to show you over here in verse 6 of Jonah chapter 3, uh, the Jonah uh, 3 verse 5, just above it, sort of gives the what happened. Uh, and then it goes into more specifics and sort of retells the story. It's not chronological verse 5, then 6. But verse 5 is shown to us without the king's involvement. This wasn't just a political move. This wasn't just Asher Dayan III telling everybody to repent. They heard, they repented, the greatest to the least of them. And in the midst of that, when the word of, of repentance, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, when that reached the king, he solidified it by commanding everybody to fast, put sackcloth on, take off your beautiful clothes, put on sad clothes, put ash on your head, come into the streets, stop eating and feasting, let's repent of the evil we're doing, and maybe God will relent of the disaster that is coming on us. That's what happened. It went from the king, it went among the people, it reached the king, and then came back over all the people in a more formalized way. And verse 9, they said, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. Let me give you the literal word there. God repented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Does God change his mind? No. No, God does not, he's not a man so that he, he repents like a man does, we're told in 2 Samuel. And yet, he, he repents like a God does. How does a God repent? How does our triune God of Scripture, the only God, how does he repent? How do, we, how do we interpret this? And the reality is that he repents or responds to human actions on the basis of covenant. His covenant comes through covenant words. Therefore, wherever the words of God go, we can expect 
that he will bring about his, his own activity and, and changing of behavior through the contingency of human responsibility. Lots of theological words. It basically means this. Because of God's sovereignty and his promise to, to act in real-time space history with human beings, when he sends his word, he will bring about change. He responds to the way people respond because he is acting first. So, so go with me to Isaiah 55. I know I'm, it's called Baptist air conditioning. When pages go back and forth and back and forth, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. I'm getting a nice breeze up here. Isaiah chapter 55. This is a, a, a text of scripture that is often used to prove a doctrine that we call the infallibility of the word of God. Infallibility is not the same as inerrancy. Infallibility means God's word is powerful and therefore never fails. It's like in creation, God never said, let there be plants and then had to give it a second go like we have to on the mower because it just didn't land. He speaks, it always has the effect he wanted it to. And that also is included in the Bible. When God speaks through his covenant scriptures, through preachers, whether that's you or, or an elder or a missionary, when his covenant words meet covenant ears of his people all over the world, God brings about the work that he wanted it to do. So read with me. Chapter 55, verse 10. He uses the picture of the water cycle. He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and they do not return back to heaven. They do not return there, but water the earth, making it spring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. In other words, he's, he's saying the water doesn't just zip down in, in rain and then back up again perpetually. It comes down and achieves things. It brings life. It makes plants sprout. So also, verse 11, my word is that goes out from my mouth. It will never return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose it. And it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Us reformed people love this verse. It basically means God speaks and no matter what you see with your eyes, believe God is working to do what he predestined to do. But what did he predestine to do? We sort of like to stop there as reformed people and say, God will do whatever he wants, probably condemn the Ninevites, probably condemn everybody else because they're likely not elect. Where the word goes, mostly condemnation, sometimes salvation. Read verse 12. This is the glorious part. The purpose that God sends out his covenant word to achieve, which the beginning of, of chapter 55 shows to us is the good news of the global gospel, is this. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. That's a beautiful tree. Instead of the briar, that is a, a thorny little ruined bush, shall come up the myrtle, a beautiful flower. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. 
what the word of the Lord is meant to do, and therefore what we can expect as missionaries, as evangelists, as pastors, whatever it is that you do, what you can expect the word to accomplish is bring about the kingdom of Christ. So, conviction one, we have to preach the word for anybody to be saved. But with Judson, with Mr. Boardman, with Coach Yambu, a conviction should be, if I take the gospel, there should be, there will be fruit. Now, maybe I'll see it in my lifetime. Maybe I won't. But the seed going into the ground always bears fruit. The rain coming down always brings about the purpose of life in God's purpose. So let me read also Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9. Can you go with me to chapter uh, 7 of Revelation? And here we sort of get this, this snippet to those going through a terrible trial under, the, uh, under the, um, the Roman persecution in the days of John's writing. To those people, and for all time, the suffering church of Christ, we are tempted to think that God's purposes will fail. And so he gives us a snapshot of the future. John says, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, the Ninevites, the Karens, the continental Europeans, everyone has a representative there standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on, your, on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. That's the conviction. Is that your conviction? That in the end of days, we will look around and see every tribe and nation from earth having a representative before the throne to cry out praises to Jesus Christ. As Vic so wonderfully put it for us a few weeks ago in our view of heaven, if the gospel of Jesus does not go as deep and as wide as the curse of sin, then God ultimately loses. But in every place where the curse has gone, Jesus will establish part of his kingdom by bringing souls to himself. And confident of this, David Livingston, one, from the greatest nation on earth, which is Scotland. From Scotland, that great heaven on earth. David Livingston, back in the 1800s, he was born in 1813, died in 1873, went to the second greatest nation on earth, which is Africa. And he, Scotland is also number two. <clears throat> he went to Africa. He, he was born this poor, uneducated, weak little boy. His dad used to tell him, stop reading science textbooks. If God wanted us to know about it, he would have told us. Stop trying to figure things out. That was sort of the, the religious temperament of the day. But David Livingston had this curiosity and this ambition in his bones. 
He's, he worked for three whole years making basically nothing just so that he could go to the city and, and stay in this little shanty town of a shack, but go for one semester only to medical school. And he went back home, worked another two years just to save up enough money to go back to the city and do another semester of medical school. He was so determined that Christ had a plan for him. And his heart was stirred to go overseas. And so ultimately, he ended up going to Africa. And he had this, this unsettled nature in him. He would, he would go to the missionary base, and he would work there a couple of weeks, and then just get sick of sitting around and working on the tiles and building the huts. And he, he'd go, why are we not going? There's, there's an end to our view over there. There's a horizon to civilization as we know it. The, the furthest inland a white man has ever gone is about... 50 miles north of here. Let's keep pushing. Let's keep going. There's people there that have never seen a white man, sure, but have never heard the gospel. We need to keep pushing until everybody's heard. He had the same desire as we see Paul having in Romans chapter 15. In Romans chapter 15, Paul reveals to us the great missionary heart that every Christian should emulate. In verse 12, he speaks of this. That is not true. I'm going to go 16, verse 12. <clears throat> that's not true either. Oh, I'm in 1 Corinthians, that's why. I'm thinking, man, I'm looking bad here. I'm in 16. Uh, chapter 15. Give me a verse, brother. <clears throat> you get a prize if you beat me there. <clears throat> Yeah, 21, not 12. I typed it in wrong. Okay, uh, Romans chapter 15. Here, here verse, verse 12, because that's for reference, and then we'll, we'll zip over to the rest of it. He's quoting Isaiah, and he says, The root of Jesse will come. That's Jesus. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So this is Paul's conviction. The Gentiles were purchased by Christ. The Gentiles are in the kingdom of Christ. The Gentiles enter that kingdom by faith through the gospel. And so he said, verse 17, uh, sorry, verse 15, uh, halfway through, he says, because of the grace given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. That's his calling, to the Gentiles. And he calls himself something very interesting here. He says, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified in the Holy Spirit. The job of a, of a priest is to receive your worship, your, your sacrifices, your gifts, and bring it to God as acceptable. This is how Paul viewed himself. I need to go to the Gentiles, convert them, so that their worship would stop being paganized and unacceptable, and they would be able to offer up right worship in Jesus Christ through the Spirit. 
And so he goes on to say, down in verse 20, he says, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, verse 21, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. With that conviction, Paul went. There are people who don't know, and I am not satisfied to go where Christ has already been preached, and there's just a a few corners of the city that have not been preached to. As some of the missionaries of the 1800s would cry out, this island of Britain has churches enough. They have missionaries and pastors enough. We are going to the unreached people. As we read Jonah's story, I want you to consider, have you ever been on your knees before God and prayed, Lord, why do I have such small expectations of the gospel? Why do I have such powerless views of what your gospel in a people will do? And have you ever asked the Lord to send you, to make it clear to you whether he would take you to a, to a foreign land, an unreached people? Because as the Ninevites said, the Bible shows to us of your kingdom exploding on this world amongst, amongst much persecution and yet with great fruitfulness. And we would willingly put our hands to the plow for that because there is no way to live with greater eternal rewards and ramifications than to live our life poured out for the gospel. Father God, I pray again as I've been praying weekly in this series that you would send, that you would raise up people from our very church. People who will go to unreached people groups and name the name of Christ there and see churches planted and built and established. Please, God, use this, this small, this humble, this, this weak, this human, this still wrought with many of our own sins, this tiny church in the grand scheme of things. Would you use us to bring great fruit, Lord, as people give their lives to Jesus Christ? And to any who are here who have not placed their hope, who have remained in their sin, who have refused to repent, would the, would the generation of the Ninevites judge them? Would the generation of the Ninevites condemn and convict those who sit here? We have a greater gospel. We have a greater prophet. We have a greater revelation. And to reject that brings greater damnation. But instead, Lord, in that conviction, turn them to Jesus. Give them the heart of faith to believe that his sacrifice for sins, by which he earned his dominion of kingdom, would you give to these people salvation, forgiveness, and cleansing. Father God, we thank you for the work that you are doing, doing through Jesus Christ. And it is in his strong, mighty, glorious name that we pray all these things. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.